0: Good morning, my name is Will, and I am the student ministry director here, and this week I learned that the common cold still exists. Um, so sorry about my raspiness, but I'm just thankful that it my voice came back. So, But this morning we continue in our series in the book of Isaiah, and we come to this chapter, chapter 54, which just is a stunning picture of hope, and it really, our series title, A Voice of Hope, is really shown in this chapter but I think we need to see 54 in context. For that, let's, let's do a little recap of where we've been in Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters. It was written 700 to 750 years before Jesus Christ came to this planet. And what we see throughout this book is that Isaiah is the prophet that God speaks through. And early on, Isaiah tells us the problem of the people of Israel. It's that they're prideful, it's that they're arrogant, and they're sinful. And because of those three things, they say, hey, we want nothing to do with who you are, God. We want to be our own people. And so Isaiah starts off the first 39 chapters as pictures of judgment. God's going to give them exactly what they want. And all throughout that, he shows them what's going to come. And chapter 39 is very, very bleak for the people of Israel. God prophesies that in the coming generations, that the Babylon that the people of Babylon are going to come and they're going to cart the people of Israel off into enemy territory and the people of Israel will be captive for 70 years. And you think if chapter 39 was the end of Isaiah, it would be not much of a voice of hope. And God could have done that. They deserve this judgment. But instead, chapter 40 starts off with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And God in his grace and in his presence in their lives, he does not leave them there. But in fact, he's going to give them the solution to their problem. And over the past month, we've looked at that solution. We've looked at the means of salvation through this servant that we've seen. We've seen four songs about him. And each song, it got clearer and clearer that this is talking about Jesus. And last week was kind of the culmination of all of that in Isaiah 53. It was a song that prophesied, hey, that this servant is going to come. And that it's this servant that's going to bear our griefs. That it's this servant will do what we cannot do as sinful human beings. That He's going to be pierced for our transgressions, that the punishment that will bring us peace is actually going to be upon him. And because of all of that, we as human beings can be healed by God. It was a song that clearly shows the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus achieves it all for us. And what chapter 54 follows right on that And what it's going to show us is that because of what Jesus has achieved for us, we can have a hope that outlasts this whole world. That we have a hope that's far greater than our earthly circumstances. We have a hope that's far greater than anything that we can face on this earth. A hope that outlasts this world. It's a hope that's going to be unshakable. It's a hope that is unfailing, even in the midst of a broken and chaotic world. And if we think about it, we as people in 2021... That sounds like exactly what we need. We need a hope that doesn't rise and fall with what's happening on this planet, but we need a hope that truly is unshakable. And the very first word of chapter 54 is sing. And we go from this lament song talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus to this just utter and complete joy that God is bringing into the picture. God's going to tell the people of Israel and us this morning that now is the time for joy and hope. That now, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can have joy. That it's good news of great joy that comes to us. That the answer to our pride, the answer to our arrogance, the answer to our sin has truly come. And because of that, we can have hope. But this morning, in this moment of celebration, as God says to sing, it is a little bizarre who he tells to sing. So verse 1 starts like this. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. And at first you're like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) This command to sing is God's directing at a barren woman. And it seems a little cruel at first. Right? To come to this barren woman in the midst of her barrenness to tell her to sing. Because there's no earthly reason for her to sing. Truly in this life, barrenness is something to be grieved. It's something that is disorienting. It's something that's disillusioning. It's something that is truly, truly heartbreaking on this earth. And not just in this time, but especially in the time of Isaiah. And just to understand the culture at that time. First off, they're an agrarian society. Children were very, very necessary as workers to provide sustenance from the fields. A husband and wife, yeah, it's good to be a child now, not then. A husband and wife really, really needed them to be workers. Secondly, it's an honor and shame society. The more kids you have, the more honor you receive. The less kids you have, not just the less honor you receive, but the more shame that comes into your life. A woman who bared many children was not just celebrated in the home, but she was celebrated amongst the nation. She was producing warriors and soldiers to defend the country of Israel against her enemies. And now think about what a male child secured. A male child secured the idea that a legacy would not end when the father and mother died. It was a legacy that would continue past their death and their name would live on. So if a woman could not produce that male heir, their name would be lost into the land of the dead. And probably the most devastating part of barrenness is just the public nature of it all. It would have been talked about around town that... Man, she's probably barren because God's cursing her, punishing her for what she has done. What an absolutely awful feeling for that. So why does God, in this moment, liken the country of Israel to this barren woman? Well, first we think about how does Scripture speak of barrenness. And we see it as a prominent theme throughout Scriptures. We see it with women like Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, Ruth, and many others. And it speaks of a barren woman's womb being dead. Right? A choice that no woman would make on her own. And no matter how much she tries or desires, she cannot bring life by herself into this womb. She needs a third party. She needs God to move in her life, to move in her womb, to bring life out of death. And think about what Israel is about to walk into. They're about to walk into the land of death known as Babylon. They're going to be in a place where their God is not worshipped. They're going to be a place where their temple does not stand. They're going to be moved out of the land that was promised to their ancestors, and they will be in enemy territory for 70 long years. And think about it. It's a generation that didn't choose this captivity. It's a generation that doesn't want to be held captive. But it's a generation, nonetheless, that cannot stop it. It's a generation, nonetheless, that cannot change it no matter how hard they try. They're heading into a time of barrenness as a whole entire nation. And what about in our lives? Right, our barrenness probably is not going to look like captivity. Your story might not involve any physical barrenness. But we've all felt the pain of barren situations in our life. Those situations where it seems like death is the only thing that we can have. It's those times when a marriage just feels like there's no solving it. That marriage is up to the point where it seems like death is all that's going to reign. And no matter how much counseling you do, no matter how, how, how hard you try, it just seems like nothing is going to change it. And you have to wait for God's resurrecting power to move in it. It's the pain of a parent-child relationship that just seems so far gone that all communication is broken, all trust is destroyed, and you're just sitting there that no matter how hard you lean into it, that it just seems like no life is going to come from it. So you wait for a movement of God. It's a pain of working and striving for everything that this world says will give us satisfaction. And you finally get there and you're still left empty. Still left barren. It's a pain of living in a country. that's as divided as it possibly could be on everything we could possibly choose, on every opinion we could have, division seems like it's the only thing that lives. And we sit here thinking, only God can move in this. And we think about situations like this and hundreds of others. What happens to hope in these moments? It dwindles. right? Our hope, if we're honest, rises and falls with what our earthly circumstances look like. So why does God not just tell this barren woman to sing, but commands her to sing? Why is God commanding Israel to sing, and likewise us to sing in the midst of barrenness? It's because God's going to show us that there's a hope outside of the earthly circumstances, the earthly predicaments that we are in right now. And verse 1 continues. It says, For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. God doesn't tell her to sing because she's going to get pregnant. In fact, she is not going to be pregnant from what we see in these verses. He tells her to sing because he's given her far greater promise than earthly heirs. He's actually telling her, hey, your spiritual descendants, what I am going to do in the lives of people because of you, is going to be so great, you're actually going to have to build a bigger house. That's going to be so great, your tent's going to need to be enlarged. It's going to be, need to be secured by bigger stakes because something amazing is going to happen. And you have to Think about the people of Israel headed into captivity, but what's on the other side of that? It's when Jesus Christ comes and he says, hey, no longer are just the people of Israel allowed into my family, But now the Gentiles, everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord, can come to faith. Well, God is saying that there's a hope in what is to come. Even though you can't see it based off of your earthly circumstances, that God is moving, that God is working, the God who brings death to life is moving spiritually in people. And the interesting thing about hope is this. It's that hope doesn't always change your earthly circumstances. What hope does, it changes your perspective on how you view what is happening in your life. So God's calling her to hold on to the hope that she cannot see right now, but a hope that's coming. And Isaiah continues, and he moves from a barren woman to that of a widow. And again, leading with a command, he says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. And why is that? God says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And God likens Israel, likewise us, not just to a barren woman, but to a widow. And what's a widow at that time? Well, she was forgotten. She was a burden on society. She had no standing in any presence in that day. And a widow truly had a lot to fear. And so, why is Israel like a widow? Well, Israel has made herself a widow. And you think about what... They have done thus far, right? They've chosen everything else to be their God, right? They've linked themselves to the cultural idols of the day. They've made themselves and everything else on this earth, their husband instead of God. They're saying, hey, I look like Babylon. I want to be Babylon. I want everything the Babylonians have. I don't want you as my husband, God. And what did all of those things do for them? Did they give them the promised life like they said? No, they only left them in death. They only left them as a widow. So what truly changes in the life of the people of Israel? It's God stepping in and saying, yes, you are a widow right now, but now I'm going to call you back to myself. No matter the shame of what you've gotten yourself into, no matter what you've done, I, the God who created you, I, the maker of all of this, am going to bring you back to myself. I am now your husband who will love you, who will provide for you, who will protect you. And God's saying in this, yes, you were deserted, Israel. You were grieved. You were cast off due to your sin. For a moment, you were deserted. For a moment, my overflowing anger as God was on you. But now what do you receive? You receive an everlasting love. A love that can't be broken. It's a covenantal love. It's love that only God can give. And why can all of this happen? It takes us back to the servant in Isaiah 53. It's because of everything that Jesus did. It's because he was deserted on that cross, so we don't have to be. He had the anger and wrath of God poured out on him due to our sin, so that it doesn't have to be poured out on us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we don't have to. God's face was hidden from him, so no longer is it hidden from us, right? This hope isn't just out of nowhere. It's based on and it's fixed on what Jesus Christ has done. And the widow's earthly circumstances won't change, but God, through his power and his grace, he has this ability. He makes the fearful fearless, right? He makes the confounded enlightened. He has the ability for the shameful, and think about how difficult this is, to absolutely forget their shame. And isn't this what we're all longing for in this life, right? For someone who knows everything about us, who knows the darkest parts of our hearts, who knows the shame that is a burden on our back and comes to us and doesn't just heap out performances, but it says, hey, I love you purely because I have chosen to love you. I love you in a way that's never ending, no matter what you do. I love you in a way that doesn't ebb and flow with how good you behave, It doesn't disappear when you mess up. It's a love that sees the shame that has weighed you down for years and years and years and years that you just cannot forget yourself. And it's a love that sets you free from that. It's a love that says, hey, you can forget the shame of your youth because I am enough for you. It's a love that comes to us and frees us from the whispers that shame constantly comes to us saying, hey, you're not good enough. You're not able to be loved. You're not valuable. You're not worthwhile. Who could ever love you? And God says, no, I have chosen you, and you are beyond valuable. You are loved. And why is that? Not because of what we have done, but because we get to be in a relationship with him due to what Jesus has done. And God continues, and he bakes out what this everlasting love looks like in verse 9. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore... The That the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you. And I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. And God's a God of promises. We see this bake out. He takes us all the way back to Genesis. When he promised Theo Rainbow that he's never going to send the waters of judgment down to destroy this earth again. And we have to think, have the people of Israel changed since the people in the times of Genesis? No, sin still abounds. But God is a God who holds on to his word. He says his steadfast love will never depart. And he just keeps on reminding of this all throughout Isaiah 54. It's like he just keeps coming back to it because he knows we don't really understand what this kind of love is. He knows that our human love is reciprocal. It's not I love you if you love me. It's an I love you if you look like this and talk like this and act like this. It's an I love you if you give me everything that I need so that I can then just maybe give you that love back to you. But he's saying, no, that, that's not the kind of love that I'm working with. It's a love that goes far past that. It's steadfast. It's a covenantal love. It's a love that you cannot run from purely because of what my son has done in your life. And Noah is an interesting name. It's a name that means rest. And it's a rest that we desire that Noah, the human being, could not give us. It's a rest that we need to come to Jesus who says, hey, come to me. All who labor and are heavy burden, I will give you rest. It's a love that gives us the rest. It gives us the peace that we're longing for, that we're searching for in everything else, but we can only find in Jesus. And I have no idea how long it would take mountains or hills to erode. I really don't. But it seems like a very long time. Think about that. The steadfast love of God is not something that ebbs and flows. It's not like a gas tank that needs to be refilled. But every moment of every single day, it's the same exact love that he pours out onto us. It's a never-ending place for us. And that's truly encouraging, right? To the deepest parts of our soul, to a soul that longs to be loved and cared for, God's saying, hey, I am going to do this for you. And this chapter ends with this beautiful vision. Of something far greater than this earth. Verse 11 starts like this. Oh afflicted one. Storm tossed and not comforted. Isn't that the way our world leaves us right now? Isn't that a great description of what the world is creating in us? A body of affliction. A soul that just feels storm tossed. Searching for comfort. And we just can't find it in the things of this world. Isn't that what the news is creating in us? Isn't that what our modern times, when we can see anything bad that takes place all across the world in minutes on our phone? Isn't that what happens when we have this download of information that comes at us so fast that we can't process any of it? And as it leads us, it only leaves us as afflicted, as storm-tossed, as people searching for comfort and not being able to find it. But God meets us in that place, and it's here in that state that he says, behold. And that's going to be the command. And remember, behold is a command of sight. He's saying, hey, don't look at all the stuff that's going on around you. Look at this. Let your eyes and therefore your heart fix itself on this. And he says, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. And out of nowhere, God comes on with this vision. Where God's saying, hey, I'm building a new city. It's not a city that this earth can hold, but in fact, it's a heavenly city. It's a city whose architect and creator is God alone. It's the beacon of hope in the midst of chaos. And what kind of picture is he painting for us, right? He says all these weird stones and gems. Like, what is he saying to us? Like, what is antimony, what I learned this week, besides a chemical element with the atomic number 51? Because that means nothing. We have a picture of antimony. Right? That little gem means nothing to me. But the people would have known in ancient times, right, in modern times it's actually a flame retardant, but in ancient times they used it as eye makeup. Right? They used it as eyeliner and mascara. And I don't know much about makeup because God gave me these natural dark eyes from narcolepsy, so I don't need to add anything else to them. But what is that eye makeup used for? Right, because the darkness surrounding it, it's to make the eyes pop. Right? It's to make the eyes shine beautiful in the midst of the darkness. So is the presence of antimony in the heavenly city, is that actually God telling us, hey, be glad for the darkness on this earth and the sufferings in this life? Because what are those things doing? Well, those circumstances that are surrounding you in darkness are pointing your eyes to a gem that shines brighter because of it the gem of heaven that outshines this earth and this world. What about agate? Agate is a striped mineral that was used in ancient cultures as jewelry for their warriors to show the favor of God. And the next slide shows a picture of it, right at the top left-hand corner. And why these soldiers wore this, it was to show the favor of their gods to the people around them. It was a sign that the favor of their God rested on them. So what is God putting at the pinnacle of this heavenly city? Right? He's putting the sign that the favor of God rests in this place. The favor of God rests on the people who call this place home. Because what is this earth trying to tell us because of our sufferings? Right? Because we go through hard things, the earth looks at us and says, Hey, because of those sufferings, you have a God who's forgotten about you. Because of those things that you walk through that are dark, that that make no sense at all, you have a God who does not care about you. But God showing us, no, that is not the point of all of this. That God has ordained all of these sufferings in this life to push you to a greater city than this earth has to offer. And it's there that the favor of God will rest on his people. Why of all gems carbuncle? Again, I haven't even heard of it till this week, right? It's the top right-hand corner. It's the red one. What is that color showing you, right? To me, it kind of looks like a dark fire. And these stones of carbuncle are set up as the gate to this heavenly city, right? A gate of fire. So what could God possibly be trying for our hearts to imagine through this imagery, right? Could God possibly showing us that the fiery trials of this earth are not the final destination? that those things that we're going through are not going to have the final word. But in fact, you're actually going to walk through all of that suffering and into the heavenly city where God resides. I guess think about the story of Jesus. I think about the story of the suffering servant who entered into earth. The son of God that rescued us through his very own suffering. The son of God who went through suffering to enter into glory. But a reminder first that the suffering had to happen before he received the glory. Could God possibly use using these sufferings to make us more like our savior? To make us fix our eyes on our savior? God is painting this picture for us. That our sufferings, that the barren things of this life, that the widowhood that we enter into is doing something. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand why. That they're actually producing in us this eternal weight of glory. That our home is not actually this earth. That we have a hope that far outshines whatever this earth has to offer. We're merely here for a second. But this heavenly city that God is trying to say, hey, behold this. Focus your eyes and your heart on this. Because this earth is shakable. Right, But this heavenly city is unshakable. That this is why we can have true hope in this life. Because this life is not the end for those who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God ends this with just a picture of what this heavenly city is. And just hear these words. Just hear how beautiful this picture is. Verse 13 says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and far from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. And hear this this morning in verse 17 that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Even for the barren woman, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Isaiah 54 comes to us this morning, and says, because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you can have hope. You can have a hope that's greater than anything this world could possibly offer you. You can have a hope that's greater than anything this world can bring against you. All the barrenness, all the widowhood, all the trials, all the traumas, all the sufferings, they're actually really doing something. That they're creating in us that eternal weight of glory. An unshakable hope that we can say, hey, no matter what happens on this earth, I know that my future is not just secure, but that it's great and that it's glorious because God is creating something that I cannot imagine for my good and for my glory. It's a place with no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more mourning. And there's no more pain. And isn't this the kind of hope we need right now? Isn't this exactly the hope that our country needs? Don't you think that this world needs more Christians who, who aren't so concerned with their earthly circumstances changing, but they're more concerned about the hope that they have in Jesus Christ? That no matter what happens to my bank account, that no matter what happens to my health or to my children or to my job, that I have a hope that I can cling to, that outshines all of that, that outlives all of that. a hope that's built on Jesus Christ and the heavenly city that awaits me. Because I need that hope. And I think you do too this morning. So two questions to wrap up. Firstly, have you placed your ultimate trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus? Because without that, there truly is no hope. And secondly, what are you placing your hope in right now? Where is your heart? What hope do you have? And I'm going to pray for us. Our Father and our God, we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you for this picture of hope that you've given us. Or we just praise you that you sent your son to do what we could not do. That your son took the sufferings we deserve. That your son took the punishment that we deserve. And now because of all of that, you look at us and you draw us to yourselves. You say that I will pour out my everlasting love upon you. That you're going to sit in my peace for an eternity. That this world is not going to have the last word, but that you're building the heavenly city for me, a city with no more tears, no more sorrows, a city that my heart longs for. Lord, so we just ask your spirit to fall on us. Lord God, convict us of where our hearts have gone wrong, but Lord God, give us your peace, give us your presence here this morning. Let our hearts know that you're a God who truly loves us, that you're not out to get us, you're not out to hurt us, but you've given us a hope a hope that is a beacon of light in this dark earth. We just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.